0: It's our second message coming from the book of Revelation in this study. Last week was the introduction. If you have not heard that sermon, you weren't here, you haven't followed up online, please, please go back and do that. Uh, we, we really want you to know the introduction to this book and kind of understand uh, the direction that, um, that it's leading us, that God, that God is leading us. Also, uh, we have journals for, for every one of you adults, a Revelation journal that has all of the scripture in it, and yet pages for you to take notes. We ran out of those last week. We got more in this week, and they're here today. If you have not grabbed one of those, please, please grab one of those. They're at both entrances over here. We want you to have one of those journals. I would say put your name in your journal, all right, because uh, we don't have enough for you to lose yours every week and come back the next Sunday and pick up another, so let's put your name in it. The book of Revelation is a fascinating study. It's often misrepresented and made more complicated than it is supposed to be. And last week, we reminded you that it is a little bit different piece of literature. It's a letter, and it's written as a letter. Uh, Matt, there's some people at the back looking for the journals, and there's a stack of them right there. Would you mind grabbing those? No, they're right there. Yeah, yeah, thank you, yeah. Um, the book of Revelation is written as a letter, it is, it's an, it's an epistle, like many of the New Testament letters, but it's also a prophecy, and it says that, we saw that last week in the first few verses, and also it is apocalyptic literature, it is speaking about what's coming or the end or the unveiling, all right? And um, in this way, Revelation is a fascinating study. What we want to do is take it at face value, spend time with it, not allow ourselves to be more informed by what everybody says about it or what we've heard about it, but actually read it, and that's what we're doing. At its foundation, this is a message, a revealing, a revelation from God, to Jesus, to an angel, to John, that he would write down and give it to the churches. That's very clear here. We saw that last week, and we will see that again this morning. Read with me. Today we are going to study verses 4 through 8, but read with me beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ Those are the verses that we covered last Sunday. Today we will study four through eight. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the introduction to the letter of Revelation. This is the introduction. Paul, uh, John, John introduces himself in verse 4, and he tells us immediately who it's to. It's from John, and it's to the seven churches. If you look ahead at verse 9, you will see John mentioned again, and next week we will see John describing his setting, his context a little bit more. We don't have that yet this morning. It's John to the seven churches. But in doing that, he does a greeting, which we all do. We write, we, we put a greeting, we see somebody, we have a greeting. And he mentions grace and peace, which is very common in the Bible. We have this phrase, grace and peace, uh, often in the letters. And he does what many uh, writers do, grace and peace. But in saying grace, grace and peace from God, or from Christ, or from our Father, something like that, he just naturally unfolds into elaborating on the God that gives grace and peace. His heart is full. Uh, The end is near. The experience and vision that he is experiencing now is a heavy one. And so, he unloads or just continues on with describing God. Today's passage, verses 4 through 8, is all about praising God. God. In the midst of this letter and this revelation and this message or urgent message that he will write to the churches, he opens it with praise. Our passage today is him in the letter praising God. I want us to recognize three points of praise this morning. Number one, praise God For who he is. For you kids that are using a listening page here this morning, these points should be exactly as I'm saying them. Praise God for who he is. Number two, praise God for what he does. Praise God for what he does. And then lastly, number three, praise God for what he is going to do. This is not so much uh, bulk or content in the letter as it is introductory greeting before the subject matter of the letter. John is praising God. There is worship here. There is faith and belief that God is worthy and it is impacting John's life. Even as he has paper and pen, he praises God. Even as he sits in prison, in chains, in exile, in Patmos, which is the context here that we'll see next week, even as he's in that position, he praises God. To know God and to believe in God and to understand God and to be a follower of God is to know that God deserves our praise whatever our circumstances. He is worthy through the ups and downs, through the storms, and we are to know that, and John models that for us. His first point of praise is praise to God or praise God for who God is. Now I'm making the distinction between what God does for us, and that's a whole other moment for praise, but that's my second point. The first one is just who he is. He is God and there is no other. John praises him for this. And in verses four and five, as he says, grace and peace, he brings up God and describes God for who he knows God to be. There's no mention at this point of what God is doing for him or what God is doing in the world. It's just an awareness and an understanding of God and who he is. And it immediately flows into the Trinity. We are believers in a one true God. The Bible is crystal clear that there's only one God. Anything else under him is not God and is not on God's level and is not truly God. They are false gods. There's only one true God. But the Bible explains that the one true God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is where he goes. Look at verse four. Grace to you and peace from him. Peace from him, here he goes, who is and who was and who is to come. What a statement there, right? Now, at this point, he's describing God. He's describing God the Father. He's describing uh, the one and only God. And he uses a phrase that points us to God, that God is eternal. Eternal. He is forever into the future, and he is forever into the past. God does not have a starting point. He has always been. You need to know this. There are no limitations with God. There are no weaknesses with Him. There are no shortcomings. There are no things that He can't deal with. There are no things that He doesn't understand. There are no things that He won't get involved with. God is God, bigger and better than everything. Better in a good way, you know how we use that. He is bigger in everything and more strong and more wise and more powerful. And so He's described here as who is and who was and who is to come. God is God right now. He is. It's crazy to think that some people think God has changed or God has become less or God used to do a lot, now he doesn't do a lot, or God used to be important and now he's not important. He is God. And not only is he God, he was God. He is God right now and he was God. You can go back to whatever year you want to and whatever was happening, he was God then and holy and worthy at that moment. I was born in 1979. I got eight days in the 70s. God was God in the 70s. God was God in the 1800s. God was God in the 200s. God was God in the B.C.s. God was God. He's always been God. And He is God in the future. He is, he was, and he is to come, God. I don't know how long uh, the earth will continue. I don't know if we'll see another thousand years. I don't know if we'll see another hundred years. Or if we'll see another ten thousand years. Nobody knows that. But God wants us to know that forever or however far it goes into the future, he will be the reigning God in that moment. John knows this. From prison, God is God. And at that moment, he's just speaking about the Father. You may not know that at this point because he doesn't use the word Father there. But after that, the next thing he says is about the Spirit. Look at the next phrase. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. He doesn't say Holy Spirit there. doesn't say Father on the first one, but he's talking about the Father. doesn't say Holy Spirit here, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit. We have several passages in Scripture that tell us that before the throne, the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is there working. The Holy Spirit is there guiding. The Holy Spirit is there working in the midst of God's people before the throne. But I told you last week how key the word seven is in the book of Revelation, right? You remember last Sunday, I read like 20 different references in this book of Revelation of seven, seven bowls and seven lampstands and seven churches and seven uh, everything. There's so many sevens, okay? Seven spirits here, remember seven means wholeness, fullness, completeness. Seven spirits means the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in all of its fullness. And so look what it says. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, you have the third person of the Trinity and from Jesus Christ. So what we have here is Father, Spirit, and Son. Father, Spirit, and Son. And I know that we almost always say it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here the order's a little bit different. Who knows why John did that, but that's what he does. But there's a mention here to him recognizing who God is. The Spirit being holy and complete and be- before the throne. The-, the-, the Father being eternal, was and is and is to come. And then here Christ. And Jesus Christ, in verse 5, is who he says the most about. Look what he says. He gives three little descriptions, three little descriptions here of Jesus. Remember, this whole point is praising God for who he is. Can you speak about Christ? Do you know him in that way? Look how he describes him. Number one, the faithful witness. Wow. Y'all ever had to do jury duty? You ever told the truth there? Are you nervous about it? You ever been questioned or examined or interrogated by anybody, a teacher, a coach, a boss, and been put on the spot that you have to tell the truth? Are you a a good witness? Are Are you a good witness? Are you honest? Jesus Christ is described as the faithful witness. He doesn't lie. He doesn't get the story wrong. He never twists it in a way that it shouldn't be twisted. But what does he witness to? That's great. Witnesses to many things. But Christ is described as the faithful witness because, remember, it was John, the author of Revelation, that tells us in John chapter 1 that Christ was sent to explain God to us. Jesus came to earth, sent from heaven from God, to explain God to us. John chapter 1 says he explained God to us. Or he has made him known. To see Christ is to see the Father. The very words of Jesus in the gospel say, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We know God through Christ, and so he is such a faithful witness. Any person seeking to understand God apart from Christ will find error. Any person seeking to understand God through Christ will receive a faithful witness to God. He is the faithful witness. But not only that, he describes him secondly in verse 5 as the firstborn of the dead. Now, this is a hint at what he's done because he died for us, right? He died. But that's not the point right now. He is alive, and he is alive after death. And he's the first person to ever do that ultimately in glory. And anybody else you can think of in the Bible, right? We think of Lazarus who died and came back to life. He died again, which he remains dead. We haven't gotten to the second coming and the resurrection at the end. And so Christ is the firstborn of the dead, raised to newness of life, eternal life, glorious life in heaven forever. But when you hear that he's the first of that, it should get you thinking that there will be others, right? Church, we have the hope of the promises of God that there will be other people who live forever after death. This should be your hope. In this comforting you that you can live after death, that you can live forever in heaven with God, It should not only comfort you for the life that you will have there, but it will also comfort you in death. Folks, there is comfort in death. Death is heavy. It's an unknown. None of us have ever experienced death yet, but we will. The Bible wants us to believe this promise that just as our God has died and lives, so we can die and live. The Bible teaches that to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. That your last breath on earth becomes your first breath in front of God. God. Alive. Alive after death. Born after death to use this, which Christ has already done. But this does speak to what he has done for us, and that's my second point, so I don't want to go much further with it. Just hear now that he is praising God for who he is, and when he gets to Christ, he's the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. And then the third thing that he says here at the end of verse 5 is, he is the ruler of kings. On earth All authority in heaven on earth Has been given to Christ He is over everybody He's the boss's boss He's the king's king He is the master of masters And the lord of lords Whoever is the richest He's higher Whoever is the smartest He's higher Whoever is the most powerful He's higher Everybody is in subject To Jesus Christ John's just writing a letter to churches. And he says, grace and peace to you from God, and we get this. Praise the Lord. His point here is praise God for who he is. When we start talking about people, admiring them, appreciating them, loving them, tomorrow's Valentine's Day, we gotta, we got we to gotta figure out why we love our spouse, You can, you can run into only loving them for what they do, can't you? Well, she's such a good cook. I mean, I love her. I wouldn't eat if I didn't have her, you know, something like that. I'd live off McDonald's and Little Caesars every day if it wasn't for Val, you know. But listen, that's only a part of it. That's only what they do. And you can ask anybody Any spouse. That wasn't supposed to be chauvinistic or derogatory. You can ask any spouse, like, that means you're using me. If you only love me for what I do for you, that ain't right. I'm more than just what I do. And that's true. There's a real aspect of Christianity, it's my second point this morning, that we praise God for what he does. But before that, John, with pen in hand, praises God because he knows him. He knows him. And the biggest thing that God wants from us is to know him. The Bible makes clear over and over again that it's not as important for you to do things for God as it is for you to just know him. That at your highs, when you're really, really happy, you know God. And at your lows where you're really, really struggling, you know him. John praises him now for knowing who God is. He's a relatable God. He's a knowable God. He's a father and a son. He's a spirit. He is a three-in-one. He is eternal. He is complete. He is on a throne and he is around the throne. He is the faithful witness. He is born after he died. He lives and he is the ruler Of everything, including kings on earth. Praise God for who He is. Sometimes when we sing songs, those songs don't even speak to what God does or has done, they're just songs about Him. God, you're holy. God, you're worthy. God, you're true. God, you're loving. God, you're good. God, you're my Father. We can sing those all day long about who he is. May we praise God for who he is. This is still just the greeting and introduction. But once he gets finished with that long sentence, which is just one sentence according to what I can see, He switches and now goes into praising God for what he does. This is the second half of verse 5, and it flows into verse 6. Not praising God for who he is, but praising God for what he does. And here, again, we see three different aspects. The first one is that he loves us. John knows this. John knows this, and his life is falling apart. John knows this, and he's about to die in prison. We don't know if he just died sitting in chains or if he died by getting his head chopped off, which a lot of them did. We don't know how he died, but he died here. He died at this stage of the end of his life. He's sitting here writing a letter saying, man, God, God loves us. I just like the idea of somebody writing a letter to a church and saying, Hey, remember this, man, God loves us. Hey, the next time you write an encouragement letter to somebody, and I hope that you do, could be a text, could be an email, doesn't have to be that old-fashioned pen and paper, stamp and address, but won't you remind somebody, God loves us. God loves us. We're not here feeling so down and out that nobody loves us. There is a God who told us he loves us and there is a God who walked it out, put his money where his mouth is and showed us that he loves us by taking our sins on the cross. John says, praise God that he loves us. You need to know that. You need to believe and accept in a real tangible way that you are loved, loved by God. God's not mad at you over your sins. God's not holding that against you. God is not holding a grudge against you. God doesn't get a bad attitude like we get a bad attitude. God doesn't deal with us the way we deal with people God says that our sins have offended him. Our sins lead to death. Our sins have made us guilty. We should be convicted of that, but he loves us and sent his son to suffer the punishment for our sins, and you are to believe and receive forgiveness upon trusting in Christ. You don't earn it. You don't be good enough. You don't change to get it. You believe, and he changes you. Big difference there. We are saved by grace Through faith, he forgives. He forgives because he loves to forgive. His son, Jesus, has satisfied every desire that God has. God desires to be obeyed, Christ obeyed. God desires to be loved, Christ loves him. God desires to punish evil, which is such a good thing, and he did in Christ. He punished with wrathful hatred for evil against sin, he punished that for us in Christ on the cross. The cross was a horrible demonstration of the ugliness of sin, and the cross was a beautiful demonstration that God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to be beaten and killed, murdered, nailed to a cross under the judgment of God Almighty for the sins of the world that whoever believes would be saved, would be adopted into his family, would be received, would be forgiven, would be his. He loves us. Don't you ever forget it. Hey, this life will tear you up and we all know it, right? this life will get us bad. It'll get us thinking things we shouldn't be thinking, going in directions we shouldn't be going. This life will mess us up, and we know that. Don't you ever let anybody or anything or any situation get you away from, he loves me. Oh, he loves me. I'm loved. I'm loved. The cross was real. The tomb was real. The empty tomb is real, the living Christ is real, I am loved by God. And John says, to him who loves us. But the second thing he says is that he has freed us from our sins. Not just that we're forgiven of our sins, but we've been freed from it. And this is a conversation that you've got to have, y'all. Don't avoid this conversation in your lives. Sin's a bad thing, and that's happened in in the spiritual realm. But sin is also a messed up spider web, sticky situation of getting everything messed up. You can be forgiven by God and still deal the consequences with sin. You can be forgiven by God and still wrestle with all the pain and guilt that it brings. Sin does this. And so we have this word here, freed. Freed what held us tight, what was the chains for us, what was the weight on top of us, what was the thing that just had our minds consumed with with worry and confusion and all of that, we've been freed from it, freed in Christ, freed from our sins. And he gives us, what I'm already talking about in the cross, the, the specific detail of that freedom coming by his blood. The wrath of God has been removed because of the blood of Christ. His life was taken to give us life. There's freedom there. If you want freedom from your sins and the bondage and the baggage and the stickiness of sin, trust in Christ who loves you Who died for you, and he will free you. Repent. Ask God to forgive you. Believe that he forgives. Believe that he frees, and he will. The third thing that we see here is he made us a kingdom. He made us a kingdom in verse six. And not only that, but in that kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Praise God for this. That the king who is the ruler of kings on earth, the king that's above kings, he has a kingdom. All kings have a kingdom, albeit how big or small. But the king Jesus and the king God, the king over all, he has a kingdom. He has a a, a community or a, a place in which he reigns over all of it. One day that will be final, and it will be the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be as we think of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. But even right now, there are so many places and people and areas that the king reigns over in his kingdom, namely hearts and lives of those who are believers. You are in the kingdom. The king reigns over you. May that comfort you. You are his. And so because of what God has done, not who he is, but what he has done, he loves us, he's freed us from our sins, and he's made us a kingdom. We are people and uh, priests inside of God, the king's kingdom. Praise him for that. What we have in John's first few verses here of four, five, and six, we see him worshiping God for who he is, and we see him worshiping God for what he has done. It's awesome for for you to say that you love your spouse because of what they do, and it's awesome for you to know that you love your spouse just simply for who they are. a matter of fact, it's great for you to understand both of those, and it's great for us to understand both of those about God. We need God to do some things for us, right? There's a place to love God simply because we know him, but the truth is about this life and about us sinful people and our disobedience, if God ain't going to do it, it ain't going to happen, right? If God's not going to be the one to get us right, we aren't going to get right. If God's not going to be the one to bring healing in our lives, we're not going to find healing. If God's not going to be the one to bring forgiveness into our hearts and our souls on the inside, it's not going to happen. If God's not going to be the one who gets us truly in a relationship with God, that won't happen. All the effort in the world will not get us there. If God's not going to be the one to bring us into his family and into his kingdom and therefore into heaven, we will not get there. The Bible describes a ladder getting to heaven. and We love that. You will see angels ascending and descending from earth to heaven. That's a description in the Genesis, and that's a description in John. And Jesus says, that is me. You will see angels ascending and descending on me. Jesus is the ladder to heaven, and he will get you there. But it's not an actual ladder that you climb. Heaven's a little bit higher than the largest ladder you've ever seen. It's spiritually too far away. It's spiritually too far away. One time years ago, I, on a ladder, changed those light bulbs up there. I was scared to death. It was so steep, it wasn't like that. It was like straight up. And I remember saying, this is too high to be on a ladder. I have never done it again. But I'm telling you, there is no actual ladder to heaven, not an extension ladder, not a fire truck ladder, not an elevator, not an escalator, not anything that actually raises you up. There are none of those. The way to heaven is through Jesus and his blood and the forgiveness that he gives. We praise him for who he is and we praise him for what he does we know both of those you don't have to be a good student to be a christian you don't have to be smart at all to be a christian right but you do have to know god you do have to know god through his saving message of jesus dying for you and that means who he is and that means what he does now that I have got you thinking about who he is and what he does, those two different aspects, and him being worthy of that, I want to say just a few things that will help that click a little bit better, all right? The phrase that we have been taught to use all the time in speaking of our relationship with Christ is Lord and Savior, isn't it? My Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Well, you know what Lord speaks to? Who he is. You know what Savior speaks to? What he's done. That's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, who's that? My Lord. What's he done? Saved me. My Lord and Savior. In John chapter 9, in that passage, not John chapter 9, in Jeremiah chapter 9, in that passage, where God says to not boast, we talk about that passage a lot. Don't boast about how smart you are, your wisdom. Don't boast about how strong you are, your strength. Don't boast about how wealthy you are, your riches. Don't if you're going to boast, boast about this, and he says these two things, that he knows me, God says, boast about knowing me, and that I do this, I'm the one that loves, I'm the one that executes justice and righteousness, and I delight in these things, God says, who he is and what he's done. A few chapters later here in Revelation, we get to chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's this initial scene early in the book of heaven, of God on the throne. And some of the songs in Revelation 4 and 5 don't say anything at all about what God has done. They're just so much, like, worthy are you and holy are you, God, right? Y'all know those songs. That's in Revelation 4 and 5. Worthy are you, God, holy are you, God, who was and who is and is to come, right? You are awesome. But then there's other songs in Revelation 4 and 5, songs that they're singing in heaven, and they're totally different. You were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people, and you made us yours. You see the difference? Some are all about who he is, and some are all about what he's done. There's a difference there, and yet both of them are really good. Who he is is deserving of worship. May you grow in just knowing God, what he's like, what he says, how he responds, how he treats people. If Jesus comes up on somebody that's, a, that's a, a sexually immoral person, how's he treat them? If you don't know, find out what he's like. If Jesus comes up on somebody that is a foreigner, not from there, how's he treat them? If you don't know, find out what he's like. If Jesus gets to spend time with kids, how's he gonna treat them? If people are pushing kids to the background like they're not important, how's he treat them? If you don't know, find out what he's like. If Jesus runs into somebody who's religious and arrogant, how's he treat them? Find out. See what he's like. This is the glory of following Christ. We know who he is. We've got a big book here of God showing us what he's like. We worship him for who he is. That's like Jesus. That's like Jesus. That's like Jesus. We can identify him as we grow in our relationship with God, who he is. And yet, also, because of the weight of sin and the conviction that we feel, we are also so aware of what he's done. We need forgiveness, we need grace. We need somebody caring to come along and just be good to us when we don't deserve it. We need mercy. We need somebody to come along and even though we should get this, just give second chances and offer hope and restore and redeem and reclaim, and he does that. This is what he does. We gotta know God and praise him for who he is and what he's done. And this is John writing here in the beginning of this letter, but there's still so much more. And when we get to verse 7, he shifts a little bit. And my final point this morning is that he praises God for what God is going to do. Praise God for what he's going to do. At verse 7 he says, now there's a little bit of a a shift here. I know it's just beginning introductory stuff, but there's a little bit of a shift here because at the end of verse 6 he says amen. But at the end of verse 7, he says amen too. And at verse 7, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. There's a little bit of apocalyptic literature in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And Daniel chapter 7 says that the Son of Man will come with the clouds. Here we have that he's coming with the clouds. Right now, you may remember the songs that we sang in the beginning of the service, right? And yet again, you can see why Andrew Crawford is such a good leader for us, because we just sang songs, literally a song that says, he's coming on the clouds. That's good planning, that's good work, that's faithfulness to the scriptures. Thank you for that, Andrew. When you sing he's coming on the clouds, It's a little bit easier to remember he's coming on the clouds. But he is. He is coming. He is coming. And this coming, church, is not the first coming. Everything we study in this book has told us about his first coming. His first coming, he did not come to condemn the world. He came that the world might be saved through him. You've heard that before. This coming, though, that is described here in Revelation 1 is the second coming that believers throughout the history of the world have longed for, have waited for. Because of the first coming, we have hope, eternal hope, that he's coming again. Because we're believers in this book, which is the word of God spoken to the world, we know He's coming. We sang in the song after the coming with the cloud song, we wait. We wait for you. The Christian life is full of waiting, and that's why we have such a problem because so many of us are impatient. We hate to wait, right? You go to a restaurant and they say it's going to be a 30-minute wait. You drive to 15 minutes to another restaurant and say it's a 30-minute wait. You drive to another restaurant, it's going to be a 15-minute 15 15 minute wait. And you drive around, the next thing you know, you've been searching for a restaurant that didn't have a wait for an hour when the original wait was 30 minutes. This happens all the time. We just hate waiting. But Christianity says, wait. He's coming. Wait, he's coming. But see, this second coming is going to be amazing, it will be universally visible. Look what it says at verse seven. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Notice that the Bible doesn't say that everyone will see it. That's the way you and I think about it. And because Revelation has been turned into this big, massive, Armageddon apocalypse experience, that's the kind of the way we think. Is this it? If the, if the moon looks red tomorrow, somebody's gonna say, look y'all, the moon's red. If you see a dragon statue, somebody's gonna go, look, I think we're, we're at the end, man. There's dragons now. People turn everything into this. But notice that it doesn't say it. It says every eye will see him. It doesn't even say every person. Every eye. I remember an expression that comes out when people give directions. It's hard to give directions, isn't it? Especially if they don't know the context, you know? If somebody asked me where Moby Dick was, and I said, well, well you go down here and you, you go past the place that used to be a furniture store and now it's turned into a church and you go past it and the Moby Dick's right there in the same parking lot. But if they don't know where the furniture store was and they don't know that it's turned into a church now, then they're not gonna find the Moby Dick, right? They, they can't find the first thing. And so when we give directions, depending on if you're really good with directions or not, sometimes it goes over really well. I mean, y'all know some people that are really good with directions. You guys just say one thing and they're like, okay, I got it. Yeah, I'll find it. And they're not worried about it. They'll find it. But you know, some people, you give them directions and they're just not, they're not going to find it. And so we have an expression when we're giving directions where we'll say, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. It's like if somebody says, and this happens all the time, so what, what, what church do you go to? Where's your church? And I'll say, do you know where Fairdale Road is? Oh, yeah, yeah, I go to all the time. You know where the high school is? Yep. You know where the Dairy Queen is? Yep. Okay, if you can go from the high school to the Dairy Queen, you can't miss it. If your eyes are open, you can't miss it. Sometimes people miss it, you know, even when we say you can't miss it. But what John is saying right here He's not saying you can't miss it. He is saying with gospel fervor, he's about to say amen after this sentence. He's not saying you can't miss it. He is saying you will not miss it. You will not miss it. When Christ returns, every I will see it. And so, the Bible says many are waiting for that, and they will rejoice as soon as it happens. The very moment you hear the trumpet, you hear the cry, you hear the angel, and the sky opens and your eyes see it, you will rejoice finally. Yes. We just sang about it. But the Bible says here, because it doesn't speak to that here, the Bible says here, look what it says. And may we be a humble church that knows how to feel the weight of the heaviness of Scripture. Y'all, not every sermon's a laughing sermon, and we know that. Not every passage in Scripture is a jump up and down. Look what it says. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Simultaneously, what will be the best thing in the world for all who hope in Christ will be the worst thing in the world for all who do not. It will be wonderful, for those who need forgiveness of their sins and have trusted in Christ for it. And it will be horrible for those who need forgiveness of their sins and have not. May we feel the urgency. And although that is heavy, it will be universally visible. He writes, even so. Amen. The cross was not in vain. The work of Christ was not in vain. It is accomplishing what God sent him to do, to redeem God's people, to save the world, to create the church, to the, the kingdom, the people of God. And so he worships there. He praises God not only for what he does, not only for what he's done, but he praises God for what he is going to do. I want to ask you quickly to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to ask you to bear with me here, okay? Hold on tight. We're, we're wrapping up. But I don't want us to miss this. Now, one of the huge questions that you all have with the book of Revelation in this study is a timeline of the end. I know that. I haven't mentioned that yet. I haven't brought that up. But I know that's really the biggest thing. I know that. And I know that's where so much of the confusion comes. Well, I intentionally want us to not deal with it until Revelation wants us to deal with it. But today, I want to show you this passage as a way of helping you think through all that the Bible says about certain issues. At Matthew 24, if you're taking notes and you've stopped taking notes because it hit 12 already, get your journal back out and take notes on this. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Matthew 24, 29 to 31. Listen to this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now look at verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. He's talking about the same thing, isn't he? There are multiple, multiple mentions from what we just read in Revelation 1 to what we just read in Matthew chapter 24. Coming on the cloud, Christ coming on the clouds, every eye will see it, those will mourn, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Remember that passage when you start thinking weeks down the road about timeline, and I'll take us back there for sure. But I wanted us to see it. And then finally, we get to verse 8. And this is an interesting spot because this is not John writing about God. I didn't even know where to put this in these three points. This is not John writing about God. This is John quoting what God says. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Alpha and the Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. If you went to college and you joined a fraternity or sorority, you already knew that, right? But if you didn't, then you're like, what does that mean? Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter in, in the Greek alphabet, okay? And what Jesus is saying here, or God is saying here, is that he's the first first and the last. He's the beginning and the end, and he says that in many places. You can't talk about anything in this life or anything about God or anything about us if it doesn't involve the Lord God. He's it, and Revelation is getting us to see this early on. But then after that, he goes back to the thing that John said early on in verse four, who is and who was and is to come. John already said that. This is the eternality of God. God is forever. He is always God. But in verse eight, God says that about himself, but he adds something. He is and he was and he will always be the almighty. This phrase almighty is awesome. R.C. Sproul writes that this word almighty occurs eight other times in the book of Revelation. It underscores that God's power is supreme over all of the cataclysmic events it records. God exercises sovereign control over every person, every object, every event, and not one molecule in this universe is outside of God's almighty dominion. He is the almighty. He is the the Almighty. Verse 8 comes to us in this introduction as like, well, wait a second. Did did God give a vision to John? Is John supposed to write to the churches, or did God just happen to speak up right there because he says God says that? I don't know. Maybe John's just recalling it. But when God speaks, John writes it down, and here we are reading it, but it's a strong statement. Verses 4 through 8 are the greeting that John gives to the letters. And they are filled with praise for who God is, what God does, and what God is going to do. I want to ask you if you're ready for that day, if Christ comes back today during our chilly lunch and cuts it short, and you don't even get to hear who wins, you'd be ready for that? you got to be ready for it. But while being ready for it kind of pushes this urgency, and we hear phrases like we saw last week, like the time is near, verse 3, or these things must soon take place, verse 1, we kind of want it to hurry up. And that's where the Bible comes back with urgency, with wait. And we have a phrase in our culture that says hurry up and wait, right? And perhaps Christianity is the ultimate hurry up and wait, because we are waiting. But waiting is hard for us because our attention spans don't like to wait. Because of social media and just the rise of videos, we're always watching videos. And you know what it's like. You see a good video and you tell somebody, hey, look at this one. And that's that's rather annoying. And I, I do that a lot myself. I wish I didn't. And Val's always like, nobody wants to watch your videos. And it's, it's annoying when somebody's always saying, look, you're in a room with 10 people, and somebody says, look at this video, and now, now I've isolated these people, and everybody else is wondering, well, what is it? And I'm, well, it's, it's not really that important. Well, you just pulled them out, right? That's how it goes. And, and, but our attention spans have us where we're not really into that. And so we, we start to watch a video, and if it doesn't grab our attention in the first, like, five seconds, then we don't even finish it up. And so now what we see on online posts all the time, and I like this, is it says, wait for it right? Because they know we're not going to wait for it. The first half of this video is just not good enough for me to stick with it. Wait for it. Hey, wait till the end. View till the end. Wait for it. And in a very real sense, our New Testament, the book of Revelation, and the promises of God are saying, wait for it." it. Is life hurt too bad right now? I feel you. There are too many questions right now. I'm with you. Do you hope he comes back tonight so that it'll all be over and we'll be at peace? I understand. But the book of Revelation is saying, wait for it. He is coming. Father in heaven, thank you for this great study that we're on and for the promises that are to be believed about our Savior who loves us and freed us, coming. Father, we pray that you would make us ready. Make us ready. God, we pray that we would trust and believe. God, we pray that we would hope in Christ, know our Lord and Savior, and be ready for when that day comes. God, give us assurance in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.